Welcome to Running On Purpose, a weekly podcast dedicated to training the body, the mind, and the soul for what the race requires. My name is Steve Sisson, and I will be your host. Hello, world. Welcome to Running On Purpose. Another week, I'm back with you. This particular episode, I'm calling Dirty Dark Coaching Secrets. And this particular episode was originally a part of a longer episode. Episode two was the first third of it. Uh, this episode will be the second third. And then the fourth episode of the Running on Purpose podcast will consist of the final portion of it. And that final portion will be the why, the how you actually implement self-coaching. So... I kind of jump right in here and, and it'll be a little bit of a, of a, of a big, of a jump in. Just recognize that it is a continuation from episode two and I really hope that you guys will enjoy it. All right, before we get there onto the how, right? So I gave you some reasons why. And before we get a little deeper into the hows, I want to go through um, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, I'm going to call this the Dirty Dark Coaching Secrets. So I'm going to share with you some inside baseball, right? Coaches have secrets that they guard very closely and they have secrets that they aren't even aware of. How do I know that? Well, I've been coaching for 25 years and I've coached at every level. And I know that there is a sort of a Wizard of Oz aspect to being a coach. You know, if you know the Wizard of Oz, they finally get behind it, pull the curtain down and what? There's some little dude behind there playing an organ, right? In a lot of ways... I know that as an ex experience that I have as a coach, sometimes it feels like I'm that little guy who's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Um, and so I want to go through here and give you um, some inside baseball and a little bit of an insight about this this coaching profession. And I hope through this process is not to call coaches out, but more to highlight to you the ridiculousness of providing of you asking your coach to do all these things for you. All right. And I think when you see these dirty, dark coaching secrets, it might help you to see um, where you need to engage and why you need to engage in also coaching yourself. Okay. So one thing I want to tell you is that if your coach has been coaching for less than 10 years, then they probably don't have enough personal empirical data to be an effective coach. Okay. 10 years. That's a long time. But 10 years is what it takes, in my opinion, for a coach to be able to take their own experience as a coach, to have watched athletes go through training cycle after training cycle after training cycle, right? And be effective at making sure that they can handle all the balls that are in the air to get it just right for their athletes. So I think it takes 10 years in order to be an effective coach. But if a coach has been coaching for more than 10 years, then you've got another challenge. Now you've got the challenge that that coach basically thinks that their empirical data is the truth. And I'll get into this a little more deeply in a second. But so here I am telling you, if a coach hasn't coached for 10 years, then they don't have enough data to effectively coach. And if a coach has been coaching for more than 10 years, then they have so much data that they think the data is de facto truth. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is because of that, maybe you should think about doing a little self-coaching too. All right. So that's my introduction to this. I'm going to give you some sort of pithy, rather um, rather sensational 
statements, and then I'm going to go through that statement, tell you why I think it's true, but then also show you why I think that the coach still is effective and necessary, um, and then how you can sort of marry your experience to that and be um, an effective self-coacher. All right. So the first thing is your coach thinks you're full of shit. I don't know how many times I've said this myself. Athletes that I've worked with, they've heard me say it in a group. They've heard me say it face-to-face to them. I think my athletes are full of shit, right? And you probably are when it comes to your training and your goals and your commitment. Why is that? Well, the reason is is because you are not a reliable narrator of your experience. And you're not a reliable narrator of your experience because you haven't taken the time to look at yourself as a storyteller. You haven't taken the time to look at the experiences that you've had as a runner and how they play out in that ongoing storyline of your running. And so therefore, you're just coming at this from a perspective of what you want or what you've seen without critically reflecting on it. And knowing how that works into the longer, more um, elaborate narrative of an entire athletic running career. And so you are full of shit. Um, now, your coach thinking that you are might be disconcerting. But, you know, he's saying he or she, they, that coach is probably um, right about this. Is that if you haven't spent the time reflecting critically on your own experience, then you're probably full of shit. I mean, do you really know what you want? In my experience of working with athletes, so rarely do I meet an athlete that already comes fully formed, understanding their want, okay? Um, number two, do you really know and understand what it takes to get what you want? So first, you got to know what you want, and then you need to know and be critical and be able to understand what it takes to get that, okay? I had an athlete recently who said he wanted to run a sub-five-minute mile, Well, this athlete just ran 3.43 for a marathon this weekend, right? Those two things are completely different things. Now, in this athlete's defense, he was joking and really hadn't been critically reflective on what it was. But in that moment, that athlete was being full of shit. He did not understand that 3.43 marathon does not equate to a five-minute mile. And that's why coaches sometimes think they're athletes and frequently they're right that their athletes are full of shit. They don't have the experience to know and understand what it takes to get that thing. Um, now here comes a more deeper level issue with that. Are you really willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want? So yeah, know what you want. Do you know what it takes to get there? And are you willing to do whatever it takes to get it? Right? So those things are the reasons why many coaches feel like their athletes are full of shit. All right. So you, it's, it's not that they're, um, not that coaches out there are being, disrespectful or or not fully seeing it. It's just that they're going into it knowing that they are going to have to balance something with that athlete. Now, if your head and your heart are aligned in terms of what you know you want, and you know that this sport of running, this endeavor of running is a path with heart for you, and you are immediately able to do work as a self-coach that guarantees that you're not full of shit, okay? So that's the first inflammatory comment. The next inflammatory comment, your coach is fucking with your head. And guess what? They absolutely should be. It's my opinion that effective coaching doesn't just look at the physical training of training the body, but it's also trying to play into training the mind for 
the varieties of psychological experience that happen when you're out there in a race. You're under duress. You've got a big pressure on you. Your body doesn't doing exactly what you think it should do or why it should do it. And then the mind starts doing that inner monkey chatter that creates all kinds of negative feedback loops that make it difficult to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. And so what coaches are doing with their workouts and what they're doing with training is trying to manipulate your body to do effectively what it needs to do to be ready for your race. But they're also, if they're good, they're also affecting your psychology. They're working on your psychology. They're testing your want and are you willing to do what it takes for what you want. And so therefore, they've got to be fucking with your head. Now listen, in order for a coach to effectively fuck with your head, you have to give them permission. You have to invite them into the octagon of your experience, right? So you're in a battle psychologically with yourself and you're trying, you're hoping that the battle will be the easiest fight ever. You'll be able to go in there Mike Tyson style, hit him in the chops with one big quick hit. If you're in the MMA, if you're into MMA, you can do a round off knock them in the face, they go down, end of story, two minutes in, I have not yet experienced a race where that happened. I have not yet coached it. I have not run it myself. It is an ongoing battle, an ongoing long battle. And so you need to allow your coach to effectively come into that octagon of your experience and help you through your deepest fears and your deepest desires because they are the things battling it out in that octagon for supremacy. And... You are the most effective person to be in that octagon doing battle, but it is so helpful to have a knowledgeable coach who is excited about the mind and the body connection and how the mind and the body work together to effectively get what you need to get. So yeah, your coach is fucking with your head and they should be. All right, the next inflammatory comment, your coach is experimenting on you. <laughs> yep, it's true. Everything in training has to be flexible. It means that when we do work, we have to see how that work affects an athlete. And coaches need to know how the body responds, how the mind's responding. Was it too much work? Was it not enough work? Is there more we could have done? Should we adjusted paces? So throughout their training cycles, no matter how in-depth they are, no matter how many years they've been doing it, no matter how much experience they have with an overall macro cycle picture and how that plays into each mesocycle as it plays out in over ongoing training and even how it looks within each and every session or even every one to two week session, how that whole process works is a question of trial and error, no matter how concrete it is. And if it's not, then they're not an effective coach because they need to be critical and reflecting on whether the work that they're doing is effective. Um, and so it's a process of trial and error. Every athlete responds differently. Every season is different. Every cycle is different. We've got different weather conditions and weather in, in, in the place that I coach athletes in Central Texas, Austin, Texas. Right now we're going through the dark night of the soul with the summer. It has not stopped. It's still 104 degrees. We're having 82 degree mornings with 85%, 90% humidity. And it's really hard for athletes to know whether or not they're ready for their fall marathons or ready for their fall half marathons. And they're kind of freaking out about it. And I'm freaking out about it. And here I am. I've been coaching for 25 years. I put athletes through these specific training cycles over and over again. Um, for years, but I want to tell you, I experimented on everybody and that's how I became a good coach. So because it's an experiment, then you need to be a part of that experimental process because you are the, you are the, um, 
the thing being experimented on. And your coach needs your reflections and your experiences to determine what the next best move is. So without that information, they're just going to move the way that they think that you or the group that they're coaching needs to move. They aren't going to move the way you need them to move. Now, if you're actively engaged in the self-coaching process, then you are also co-experimenting on yourself. You and your you and your coach are are mad scientists working through the experience that you're going through in this training cycle on each day and each day dealing with the weather dealing with the crucible dealing with all the different things that might be coming up and effectively creating a program and effectively adapting modulating moving forward with one to try to optimize for success so yeah your coach is experimenting on you and he or she should all right the next inflammatory comment, your coach probably knows less than they let on and they probably stopped learning, All right? So part of any role that anybody takes on and like it or not, no matter how much a coach says that this coaching is who they are or what they are, it's still a role. I know this because as a coach, I, I take on a different role with different athletes depending on what I think that athlete needs. And sometimes when we're getting started with any role that we do, we got to fake it till we make it. And so coaches are adept at faking it till they make it. Now, I can't say for sure um, that coaches are full of shit. But in my experience, knowing myself, I have been. And there are times in my coaching career where I did not know exactly what the next best thing to do was. But if I said that to my athletes, then I think that they probably would have had a negative experience of me as a coach. Early on in my career, there's no way I could have, no way I could have um, dealt with that uh, lack of leadership is what I would have called it. But what it would have been really is the ability to be vulnerable. Um, and so most coaches um, know a little bit less than they're trying to tell you that they know. Um, and many of them have stopped learning. They're not looking at the newest and latest training data. They're not learning about each and every one of their athletes and the experience of each of their athletes and how that experience is effective for optimizing performance. Um, and so coaches are not in a space frequently where they're growing. And because they're not in a space, if they are, okay, but if you have a coach who's maybe not growing, they need you as a self-coached athlete to help them grow. If nothing else, just ask questions. Ask questions when they come up for you. Don't just assume your coach knows. He or she should know because they wrote the program, but sometimes the coach is letting on that they know more than they do. And they're doing a workout because they read it somewhere or they heard that it was effective or they're, um, they think it's the next best thing for you to do because they saw it somewhere in some literature somewhere that it was. And so this sort of, dirty, dark secret of coaching is one that I think really needs to be in play. And yes, you need to trust your coach. You need to believe that your coach is coming into it with a whole heart and with honesty, but it doesn't always play out that way. And if you are someone who is self-coached, then you're able to check that and to always be able to check that. So here's another inflammatory comment. Most coaches coach from a place of fear. Um, this one will be one that I think that many coaches will get mad at me about talking about. Um, but how in the world couldn't they? Because just like you want your race result, your coach wants your race result for you. And what is the biggest challenge that you have to getting your race result is that you're afraid that you won't get it. 
So therefore, a coach is also in a similar space where they're afraid you won't get your race result. Why is that? Because they're coming from a place where your result is going to reinforce their idea of themselves, to reinforce that they're a good coach, to reinforce that they're most effective for you. And so anytime somebody comes from that space, it's almost always a de facto space of fear. And now, I don't think that this is something that just gets fixed and righted. Um, why? Because dealing with the fear of failure, um, both as an athlete and as a coach, um, is the one of the fundamental reasons why this sport is so amazing, is that you have to do battle with yourself all the time. And the result is uncertain. If the result was certain, we wouldn't be playing the game. That's what makes the game worth playing. That's what makes the path a path with heart because there's risk involved. And when risk is involved, failure can occur. And we're afraid of it. And your coach is just afraid of it as you are. So wouldn't it be much more effective for you as an athlete to be able to know that both of you have a stake in the game? Both of you want it really badly. Both of you want the result to turn out as it does. So that inflammatory statement that I just made is one that I think is good, even though it sounds bad. I know that from my own coaching experiences, when I feel that fail, when I feel that fear, when it feels like a failure will really sort of negatively impact how I view myself as a coach and therefore as a human being, I check myself. Um, and as a self-coached athlete, you have the ability to check that in your coach and the ability to check it in yourself. Now, dealing with the fear of failure, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That's a big, big, big um, undertaking, not one to be taken lightly and one that has lots of steps involved in it. Again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I just wanted to make that statement that not only that almost every coach that I know is, is coaching from a place of fear, and that's okay, but they should be always looking at it and how they can make that less so. All right. Next inflammatory comment. I've got these coming rapid fire, don't I? Most coaches are dogmatic and inflexible. There's just something about being in a leadership role that makes an, a coach feel like because they come up with an idea and they've had an idea that has been successful, that that's the only way to getting the result. So most coaches are dogmatic because they've seen something work and they believe because it worked once, it must work again. And if it worked again, then they just even more double down on the thing that worked and to the point where they don't have enough flexibility. They don't have enough ability to look outside the plan and say, why is the plan working? And are there other ways to optimize this? Are there other ways to change this? Um, and so anybody that's dogmatic and just says, this is the way, this is the high, this is way or the highway, that's a coach that you absolutely need to be self-coached while you're working with. Now, sometimes I think that's really good. I have met coaches who are dogmatic and inflexible, who are really good coaches. Um, but they're usually have been coaching for 30 plus years and they have seen it all. And so what they'll do is do little micro adjustments for the individual athlete that need to be made without changing their overall big programming. Um, but in my experience, unless you are a master coach and have been doing this for a long, long time, you shouldn't be dogmatic and inflexible. I personally think no coach should be. Um, and so any coach, even if they have a make raising amounts of success, if they're dogmatic and inflexible, um, I'm probably not going to sit under their feet and try to learn from them because 
that's not what makes them even better. And every great, great coach, every absolute great coach I've ever met, they're constantly on the hunt for new, not necessarily new for the sake of new, but new and effective. And they'll go back, this goes back to that. They're experimenting on you. And then they'll take that information and they'll process it through the athletes that the coach that they learned that from with and say, okay, how can I implement this and put this into my programming to help, uh, help hopefully effectively get my athletes to better race results. So, um, by you having an understanding of what that coach's system is, you can help them by not being so dogmatic and inflexible, um, by asking questions. And if you are in a situation where you love your coach, but your coach is dogmatic and inflexible, you, it is absolutely essential for you to be self-coached because they're not going to make any changes to their programming um, to help you um, because they know that it works. And in the end, it may, but it also may get there because it, they you might be broken by the time you get there because they weren't willing or you weren't able to make the micro adjustments that needed to be, to be nimble and flexible enough to adapt to their dogmatic and inflexible programming. All right. Cool. Next one. Your coach is a copycat and a thief. One of, one of my favorite quotes is from the artist Bono, who's in U2. Every artist is a cannibal. Every poet is a thief. I think about that all the time as a coach because I have never given in a workout to an athlete that I completely wholesale made out of the clear blue sky. Even when I think I've done that, I can look back and say, oh, I can see the antecedents for this. I can see the places where I learned from another coach. I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, this Saturday, I was, um, this is yesterday, uh, I was coaching a, a long run workout with my athletes that I was also participating in. And when I got to that location um, and we were starting to do the work, I noticed that a group that I used to coach was at the same location doing the same workout. Now, I don't know that they were doing the same workout. I'm not sure exactly what they were doing, but they were doing loops around the same low course that we were. And I thought, wow, I wonder if they're just doing what I trained them to do um, in a bit of a way that was a little condescending and probably a little bit angry, having a little harboring a little anger in my heart about it. Um, but funnily enough, I finished one of the reps. We had a lot of recovery between the reps and who drives up and parks into the same parking lot. But my former coaches, two of my former coaches, Carmen Ricardo Troncoso, and I had to reflect as I saw, saw them that even the programming that this other pro group was doing that might have been mine, I got from Carmen and Ricardo. So we were all stealing. And Carmen and Ricardo will tell you that they found all their workouts from another person as well. So every great coach is a copycat and every great coach is a thief. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing work. I don't know how many workouts I have in my cycle that one's called the Michigan, learned from Coach Warhurst. Another one called the Dillinger, learned from Coach Dillinger. And I have them all over the place. Workouts that have been um, learned from other coaches and implemented from other coaches. So it's not a bad thing um, that your coach is a thief and a copycat. As long as your coach has the ability to continue to improve and progress. And some of the things is by looking at these other workouts that other athletes are doing, that other coaches are implementing, um, I get motivated and inspired to try something different and something new. And so I think that while it is initially seems kind of um, inflammatory and negative to say every, every coach is a thief and a copycat, it's true and it should be true. 
But because of that, you need to realize that this coach isn't um, sacrosanct and standing on high as the greatest coach that ever lived. And even the greatest coach that's ever lived still was a copycat and a thief because they got that information from somewhere else. The great Bill Bowerman gave deep, deep respect and accolades to Arthur Lydiard for the things that he learned. Arthur Lydiard learned lots of things training his own body, but he learned them from other coaches as well. So we're all learning from... Um, other sources and other places and your coaches too, but that means you can. That means that you should be self-coached as well. You should be looking at the workouts and why they work and be sure that when you're creating something new, right, that it's adapting and effectively being able to be used in your current circumstances, right? Your coach has blind spots. Just as every athlete has a blind sp- has blind spots, your coaches do too. I think it's really important to define what a blind spot is. A blind spot is a place in a coach's methodology and philosophy that where they're taking things for granted. So it's it's not like a blind spot, you know, blind spots come from the idea of driving in a car and that spot that's sort of over your right shoulder and your left shoulder that sometimes um, car panels are at or uh, where, where you don't have a free and easy access to looking over your shoulder to see, you have to turn your whole head to go look at it. When we don't turn our head, we call those blind spots. So that doesn't mean that, that that driver can't see them. It just means that they're taking for granted that whatever is in the back there is not, um, there's not nothing there. And so they can just move over. And it requires taking the full gander over to the side to make sure that you can see. So blind spots aren't that your coach can't see. It's just that your coach is making an assumption. And your coach is basically operating from a place where they're taking for granted that whatever you've learned or whatever you've experienced or whatever you've done in the past is effectively helping you right there. So if a blind spot is there, it doesn't mean that it's, it just means that somebody's not looking. And as a coach, my best check for my blind spots are to have problems come up with my athletes. When my athletes have challenges, I am required to say, is my athlete having a negative experience or having a poor reaction or is we not getting what we're looking for getting because I'm not looking at that? A lot of times I think that miles matter. I think that doing volume is crucial and critical. Sometimes I find that's a blind spot for me. I've learned over the last three, two years, probably more like a year and a half, especially that lower volume works amazingly for certain people and that not everybody needs to be trying to get big, big miles in. While there may be a physiological reason why that's more effective, a blind spot is just saying you must run X number of miles a week rather than saying, yeah, that's optimal. But what's really necessary and most effective in the circumstance. It might be for somebody to run 35 miles a week or 40 miles a week or 50. There's, it's being more flexible with that and recognizing that just because I think something's important doesn't mean I need to take it for granted. So just the same way that if your coach has blind spots, you can help your coach see them. And that's being self-coached allows you to also be looking in a 360 degree window. 360 degrees around you about what's going on in your experience. And when you're doing that, or you see your coach not looking at 360 degrees, you can help them by trying to open up and expand their ability to be a coach because you are active participant in that experience. This is what makes self-coaching so important for me when I think about my athletes. So I'm always asking my athletes what they think, what they feel, what's going on to be sure that I'm not missing my blind spots. 
and that I'm that I'm looking at them because they're there. No matter what, any times we're looking straight forward, something we can't see that we're taking for granted is behind us or on the side of us. So your self-coaching allows you to see your coach in 360 degrees and be more effective for them and help them be the best coach that they can be. So I'm going to go into my final point here about um, about what coaches don't want you to know. Um, and that's coaching running is not rocket science. All right? The surest way to develop fitness and to get results are dead simple to learn. It's really simple. You train, recover, adapt, repeat. Train, recover, adapt, repeat. Over and over and over again. What training is can seem complicated from the outside. Um, and a lot of times it is. I mean, there are some concepts that we're going to go over in the coming months that will help you be more effective at this. But really putting the pieces together, it's a lot simpler than people realize. Now, effectively getting an athlete on the starting line ready to go 100% is is challenging. Um, and it's not so simple. But for most people in most things, um, it's not rocket science. Uh, and some coaches just want you to think that way. Why? Because it justifies their experience. It justifies their pay. It justifies your need of them. It justifies the feelings that they have about being higher. You know, a lot of coaches think that they're above their athletes. Um, and so it, I think that if coaches would be willing to understand that their athletes could, un, that their athletes have the capability, if they choose the capability to understand all the concepts, the basics of the concepts, for why they're doing every every single workout they're doing and what it's trying to adapt, what what's trying to happen with it, the coach number one would be able to breathe a little easier that their athlete were actually co-creating that fitness experience with them, but they would also be recognizing that um, they have more eyes on the game. And I think some coaches just don't want to do that. I think they feel like perhaps um, they're not going to be um, as necessary. Um, and as I said at the beginning and the outset of this uh, episode. I have learned over the years that that is absolutely not true, that each coach is bringing some magic, some special individual skill that um, is necessary for people to train effectively. And the more that coach taps into that that deep experience of what they know from knowledge and um, from um, intuition really is allows the athletes to perform more effectively. And they don't need to hold on to that too tightly. So as you see, I've got a pretty um, a pretty grand scheme <laughs> uh, planned out for this podcast. Um, I certainly have no loss of content. Um, hopefully, you'll come on this journey with me and you will um, subscribe to this. Uh, if you like this episode or you want to wait for a couple more episodes to give me a review, please review it. This is how podcasters find out if they're effective. This is how I guarantee that I continue to bring this to you each and every week. Again, I'm doing this free. I'm hoping that you'll maybe one or two people will sign up for me as their coach because that's a way that I can um, continue to be able to put food on my table and provide for myself and the people in my world. Um, but um, that's not the main reason why I'm doing this. The main reason I'm doing this is because I feel like this information needs to be shared with the world. And I think that there has been a um, a gross negligence in the coaching community about not providing effective tools so that each and every athlete can self-coach. But if you want to self-coach with me as your coach, you can do that. You can just go to telosrunning.com uh, 
I've got programs there. Uh, we started our season three just this week. It's still time to jump in. I do programming for winter marathons. Um, I've got a speed development program for getting ready for 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons. I've got a maintenance program for those of you who are maybe taking some time away from running um, in a really competitive way, but you're still doing um, maybe one quality workout a week and looking at your long runs and how to be effective with those. I've got a maintenance program. I've got a brand new base building program for Boston and other spring marathons. So if you know that you're not ready quite yet to double down and get really engaged in preparing for Boston, but you're, um, but you know, you need to start doing some work. I've got a base building schedule and a full description of that and how that all plays out. So lots of programming, lots of things. If you want to be a uh, co-coach with me, then come and join me. You can reach me at Sisson, S-I-S-S-O-N at tellusrunning.com. So thankful that you've joined me for this first full episode. Um, I wish you the best on your journey and Godspeed.